Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that came to not just live a perfect life, showing us what it looks like to please and honor you in all things, but that he died as a perfect sacrifice for sinners like us. And that because of him and only because of him, we have the right to come before your presence now. We thank you that we have access to you because of Jesus as our mediator, our great high priest, our intercessor, our advocate. Lord, we're thankful to belong to Christ this morning. I pray for anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus, that even today as they hear some very important questions, that they would seek the answer for those questions in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We've already come across some great questions in the book of Job. Is God worthy to be worshipped and served simply because he is God? What is God's role in our suffering? What is Satan's role in suffering? Last week, what is the relationship between suffering and sin? Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at questions like, will we trust God no matter what? happens and is there life after death and what are some of the purposes God has in suffering but this morning in our text for today we'll see one of the most important questions that we can ever ask it shows up four times in the book of Job and so if you have your Bible please turn with me to Job chapter 4 as we continue our study in this Old Testament book Job chapter 4 And we'll look at verse 17. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? So Eliphaz is raising a serious issue here. How does God evaluate human beings? Can anyone be just before him. Just means conformity to what is morally upright or good. Synonym is righteous. Righteous means acting in accordance with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin. If you have the ESV, it says, Can a mortal man be in the right before God? And closely related is the second question Can a person be morally pure, free from any mixture of sin? or evil in the presence of the God who made us. Then turn over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? So how can anyone be on good terms with God? How is it possible... For people to be right with him. How can anyone be approved and accepted by him? Turn over to chapter 15. It comes again. 14, 
through 16 of chapter 15. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. So now we're zeroing in that we're not just asking how can a person be right before God, but how can a corrupt person be pure in the sight of a God who is so pure that even the heavens are not pure in his sight? And how can people who drink iniquity like water, how's that for a picture? How could people like that be right in God's sight? And then last 25, verse 4, chapter 25, verse 4. Bildad asks, How then can a man be just with God, or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? Have you ever thought about such important questions? Maybe you've just been assuming that everything is all right between you and God. Why wouldn't it be? You'd like to think of yourself as a pretty good person, and you also like to think of God as a very accepting God who understands, well, nobody's perfect. And so you think you should be in pretty good shape. But such assumptions are out of alignment with what God says about our condition and about his character. Here are some things the Word of God says about our fallen condition. Go to Psalm 14, next book after Job, Psalm 14. In the first three verses. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. An example of that heart attitude is in Job 21. If you want to go back to Job, Job 21, verse 14 and 15, describing the wicked or those who don't know God. In verse 14, They say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would we gain if we entreat him? In other words, go away, God. We don't want you around. We don't want to know your ways. We don't see any good reason to serve you. We don't want anything to do with you. That's not just people in Job 21. That's all of our hearts from birth. Start that way. Leave us alone, God. Psalm 143, verse 2. In your sight, no man living is righteous. Or Ecclesiastes 7.20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man upon earth who continually does good and never sins. 
And that diagnosis would not necessarily ruin us if God was just an easygoing, tolerant, sin is no big deal kind of God, which is what many people are banking their eternal souls is true. Yeah, maybe I'm not perfect, but God understands that. He's not going to judge anybody. I should be okay. And God, it is true, God is loving, but that does not mean he doesn't care about sin. So we sang holy, holy, holy earlier in our worship time together. Do you know what holy means? It means set apart. First of all, set apart above and beyond all created things and set apart completely from all that is sinful or evil. And so 1 John 1, 5 says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Or Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Your eyes are too pure to approve of evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And this perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God requires a perfect righteousness to stand in his presence. He does not grade on a curve like some teachers do, which I always was happy about, or say, well, close enough or good enough. He requires nothing less than 100% obedience to 100% of his law, 100% of the time. James 2.10, one of the verses in Sparky's every year, he who keeps the whole law and stumbles or transgresses in one point is guilty of all. So if you have an inflatable life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, doesn't matter if you have one hole or 50 holes, you're still going to sink. And falling short even once of God's law makes us lawbreakers and qualifies us to be under God's curse. Listen to Galatians 3, verse 10. Galatians 3, verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So if you can't do it all completely, which you can't, you're under God's curse. And so am I. So the question we saw four times in the book of Job is even more complicated. The question is, how can unrighteous people like us, who are guilty of sin and worthy of judgment, ever hope to be right in God's sight and accepted by him when he requires a perfect righteousness that I don't have and I can't produce. Can you think of any more important issue to get settled than that? There's a God and there's a life after death and we're going to stand before him and that's the only thing that's ultimately going to matter is are you right with him or not? Yes or no? Heaven or hell? And so you 
want to know the right answer that God gives in his word to how can anyone be right before a holy God. And one of the common approaches is to believe, well, we can do something to make up for our failure to meet God's standards. If there's a problem, we can fix it. If we just try harder to be good and to do more good things, especially if we could do some religious things, show up for church, give some money in the little plate back there, that should do it. That should be enough to gain God's approval and everything will be all right. But God's word is very clear that such attempts do not and cannot work. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So the righteous deeds we try to offer up to God, say, here, look, God, I did these good things, these righteous things are as unclean and unacceptable to God as the contaminated clothes of a leper. He will not accept them. Another way to phrase the question we saw in Job to use New Testament language would be, how can anyone be justified before God? Justified is the opposite of condemned. It means to receive a verdict of being right or being in the right. So, for example, if your spouse says, how can you justify buying that when money is so tight? They're asking is, what reason can you give that will secure a verdict that you did the right thing when you made that purchase? If you don't have a valid reason, you were in the wrong to do that. But if you have a reasonable explanation, you are justified. That was the right thing to do in that situation. So it's about being right. In a courtroom setting, justify means to declare righteous or to pronounce a verdict of not guilty. It's a legal statement that a person is acquitted of the charges against them and is in right standing before the law. And when a judge says guilty, he does not make a person guilty of breaking law. He's stating a person's status in relation to the law. And in a similar way, when God justifies a person, he is declaring a person in good standing with the law and right in his sight and announcing a change in how God now sees us and treats us. Before we are justified, we are guilty before his law, unrighteous in his sight, worthy of condemnation. But after we are justified, we are quitted of all guilt freed from all condemnation, righteous in his sight, and welcome to be in his presence forever in heaven. So to go back to Job's question, how can anyone be in the right before God? Here are three New Testament texts that tell us how what is impossible for us to achieve is possible because of God's free grace in Christ. So first go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin, God made Christ who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Christ. So God treated Christ, the righteous one, as though he had lived my unrighteous life. And he now treats me, the unrighteous one, as though I had lived Christ's perfectly righteous life. This is what Martin Luther said in a letter to a brother who was in distress about sin. He said, say to him, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine, yet set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. Then turn to Romans 3, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, declared righteous in God's sight, as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So being declared righteous in God's sight is a free gift of undeserved grace. Nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it or pay for it. And it's obtained through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, paying a debt to set us free, paid the price to set us free. William Cooper, looks like it should be Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper, was a friend of John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace. And he struggled for years with severe depression. He was institutionalized three different times for that. And he was often despairing that he was under God's Judgment. He was convinced he was a reprobate and would be going to hell. And so John Newton would encourage him along the way. And um, one of the times that Cooper was actually institutionalized, there was a Bible laying on one of the benches. And he picked it up and he opened it up to Romans 3. And this is in his words now. This is the, what he read being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to manifest his righteousness. So that's the verse he stumbled on, quote-unquote, at what we would call, an well, it used to be called an insane asylum, but an institution for someone who's severely depressed and despairing, opens a Bible, reads Romans 3, 24 and 25, and this is what he says after he reads those verses. Immediately, I receive strength to believe, and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone on me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon in his blood, and the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel." Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died from gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears, my voice choked with transport, and I could only look up to heaven in silence, overwhelmed with love and wonder. 
I hope we still feel some of that. Maybe you don't have the exact story of William Cooper, but in one sense, we all have the same story. We're sinners condemned before a holy God. And when we discover that Romans 3, 23 and 24 and 25 are true for us too, isn't there a sense of joy and love and wonder and thankfulness? Because otherwise we're all going to hell. That's the only answer is Jesus' death and resurrection and trusting in him for that. One more text. Philippians 3, 9. Philippians 3, verse 9. Maybe we should start at 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So here's what John Piper wrote about that verse Being found in Christ, united by faith, in a permanent relationship of identity with him, is 10,000 times more valuable than all of Paul's righteousness based on law. Paul had called himself blameless as to the righteousness under the law in verse 6, but all that work was worse than useless. Only one thing will count before God, being found in Christ, with a righteousness that comes from God, not ourselves. Paul treasures Christ above all things because only in Christ does he have a righteousness that counts with God, a righteousness that was infinitely better than all his legal achievements could ever be. So sometimes we sing a song that expresses our hope that we will be found in him, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So when I graduated from high school, my parents took me to Mexico for a kind of a celebration trip. They thought I would be their personal interpreter, which I wasn't as good as they thought I was going to be at that. <laughs> but one thing I remember, and this is a long time ago, okay, so my memory's a little fuzzy on some of the details here, but one part I do remember is that my parents took me to a very fancy restaurant in Mexico City. And the sign at the front door said, jackets required. So we're, we're not just talking no shoes, no shirt, no service. We're talking jackets required. Now, I'm 17 years old. I had not really thought to pack a suit coat on a vacation to Mexico. And so technically, I'm not welcome to go into that restaurant. I was not dressed acceptably to be let in. But they provided me with a jacket for free. They didn't let me keep it, but at least to go into that restaurant, I am now acceptable. I am now dressed appropriately. I'm welcome to go in this fancy restaurant where before on my own I was not welcome 
to go in that door. And in an infinitely greater way, we were unacceptable to enter into God's presence in heaven. We were dressed in the filthy rags of our own righteousness. But God himself freely provided what he required. He clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. And now we are welcome to be in his presence. Look at Isaiah 61.10. Isaiah 61.10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. If God is showing you that you are not right before him, first acknowledge, I'm not right in God's sight. I'm on the wrong side of God because of my sin. I have fallen short of his righteous requirements. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, not even one. Which means not even you and not even me. No one, no exceptions, is acceptable before God. Second, acknowledge, I can't make myself right in God's sight. I can't do or offer anything that would earn his acceptance. And so Ephesians 2.8.9 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so I trust in Christ alone to do everything necessary to change my status before God. I believe his death on the cross is the only way my unrighteousness could be righteously forgiven by a holy God. And I believe he rose from the dead and now offers his perfect righteousness as a free gift to all who will trust in him. This is how Paul Wraps up a section in Romans 4. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness, referring to God justifying Abraham by faith. His faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And now Paul tells us now, not for his sake only, not Abraham's sake only, it was written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over because of our transgression. Death on the cross, because of our transgressions. And he was raised because of our justification. That justification had been accomplished completely. And Jesus rose to show that was true. So let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that what is impossible for man is possible with you. It was impossible for any of us, no matter how good we are or think we are, to be accepted and approved by you. And you knew that all along, and so you provided Christ, who was perfect, and died on behalf of sinners like us, and rose again. And so I pray for anyone who's never put their trust in Christ that even today they would recognize they are not ready to stand before you. Even if they're religious, their good things are only filthy rags in your sight. That they would renounce all attempts of their own merit, their own righteousness, and put all their trust in Christ alone. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have put our trust in Christ that 
there would be a, a deeper sense of thankfulness and joy in our hearts that you have taken care of the biggest problem we could ever have. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, What Can take, Wash Away My Sin? as we get ready for the Lord's Supper.